and we're live. Michael, I first came to know you through your food blog, The Hungry Culture, and I tried to ask, you know, how it started and where it came from, and you mentioned Bangkok, but then you started talking about Africa, and then you've done a fair bit of travelling, it's fair to say. Uh, a nice bit, yeah, and I suppose that's where it all kind of stemmed from, travelling around and trying different cuisines and food from around the world, which is, I suppose, where the, the passion came from. Um, but yeah, the travelling was a, a huge, huge part of it. Uh, it started off, I suppose, uh, after after school, um, after secondary school, and when I first started earning money, uh, everyone kind of goes on their, their J1, uh, or aims to go on their J1 during college. So that was my first, I suppose, uh, long period of time away. Uh, that was in uh, New York. I think I was about 20 years old at the time, so I suppose a year below the, the legal drinking age which was part of the fun over there uh, but got really lucky I guess it was just uh, I suppose it was just after a, a, a breakup of my I suppose first major relationship or what you perceive to be major at the time of course. Uh, so I was kind of looking for, for an out for the summer um, and I guess it was in college and uh, this company had come over and they were looking to hire I think it was 30, 40 Irish students for the summer uh, beach out in the coast in New York, out in Long Island. Lovely. Uh, had never been to the States. Uh, from a very small town of like 3,000 people, country boy. Uh, so like the biggest place I suppose I had been up until it was like, you know, small holidays and bits and pieces. Uh, but said, okay, this is this is for me. Um, so a couple of months uh, went by, had it all tied up, paid the deposit and all the rest of it and took off to New York for the summer. And I suppose that was the first big trip um, the first uh, I suppose the first period of time where I was away from home for more than two weeks away from from my mum my siblings and stuff like that you had a bit of a bug though before you got to New York though, did you? Uh, a little bit a little bit I suppose you could say um, uh, I suppose minor holidays and stuff like that uh, but it all kind of started uh, you know, the magazines that you collect when you're you're young you kind of get a new one every week and um, so my mum, I, I must have been, I'd say, maybe 10 or 11. So I was quite young. And my mum started getting me the, the Where's Wally catalogs. And the Where's Wally catalogs was like every week he'd go to a new location, we'll say a new country. And I suppose travelling wasn't a big thing in my family. Like my mum didn't really travel. Uh, my dad does not fly, like has never flown. Um, he has a, a fear of flying, so no he will not get in the plane. So the furthest he's been, I think, is, is, is France, because obviously he can get there by boat. So my dad won't fly. So I suppose travelling wasn't something I picked up from my parents or even my brothers or sisters. They didn't do a whole pile of travelling. But it was, yeah, I suppose you could say the the Where's Wally books, which would be funny because I just became obsessed with them. Uh, we'll get a new one every week. It would be a new country. Uh, and I suppose they'd be, he'd be talking about and helping you learn about uh, all the fascinating things about that country, whether it be Egypt or whether it be uh, Thailand or parts of Europe or South America. Um, and I built up this massive catalogue of these books so I always had this fascination fascination for uh, geography and uh, new cultures and um, different types of food from around the world etc etc so that's kind of where it stemmed from um, and then yeah off to New York then I suppose first year of college um, and just expanded from there like every year I was trying to get somewhere new um, I suppose and it held me back in in some aspects, I didn't, I didn't, I still don't have my full driver's license. I'm 30 years old. I always, every time I kind of got to that stage of having enough money to buy, uh, to buy a car, 
and the insurance, which of course was was huge for a for a, a young driver, a young male driver, I would always spend that money on uh, like a real nice holiday, like as in travelling for for a month or for a month and a half during the summer, or whatever it might be. So uh, that's what I was spending my money on. It was always on travelling. Um, every single summer, every opportunity I got since the New York trip was always on travelling somewhere and trying to get to as many countries as possible and tick off as many, um, I suppose, items on my bucket list as I possibly could. And did you do the whole interrailing thing or, or where did you go? Never did, did the interrailing thing. Never did the interrailing thing, I suppose. In Europe, uh, it was very much music festivals. So when I would travel around Europe, I would try to get to... Uh, I suppose a music festival of a, like you know a, a band or a DJ that I liked at the time. So um, I suppose when I was in Belgium, I had done Tomorrowland, which was I suppose it's it's almost impossible to get a ticket for that now. Um, and then Croatia was Ultra Music Festival, and so it's always like a music festival of some of of some form when I would go around Europe. Um, so that was I suppose mainly the 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 Europe part of it, yeah. And what took you, because you, when I asked you about the, the food blog, which we'll, we'll definitely get to, that kind of started in Bangkok. Did you do Europe and then head to Asia or? Uh, it was more so, out? I suppose. Um, there was bits in between. Uh, and then I suppose when I had finished college, when I had got my degree, um, I was working with the, the National Students Union for, for a year, uh, which was, I suppose you could say, physically and mentally uh, exhausting. Uh, just the, the year of it. It's an elective position. Uh, and at the time I was, I suppose, in charge of um, assisting uh, the colleges in the south of Ireland. Cork, Tralee, uh, even Waterford was in that Tipperary. And sorry, is that a, a kind of a national body? That, or, yeah, yeah okay. Union of Students I wouldn't, I, I'm not yeah. familiar with it at yeah, all. Yeah, Union like. of Students in Ireland. So like the national body. So I guess like I had done, uh, I had done my time in Tralee, had got my degree, etc., um, had done, like I said, a bit of travelling beforehand, but it was when that finished I decided uh, I wanted to travel. I wanted to travel for a couple of years. I wanted to kind of get out. Um, so I had done Europe, did a lot of Europe that summer, and then kind of came home from Europe. Uh, was at home for about I think about two weeks, um, and then left for Uganda. And I, I guess the whole Uganda thing had come about because um, of of working with local charities in the student union. Uh, I got to college, I think it was 19 when I started college, 18, 19, and very quickly got involved with the Student Union. Um, and the Student Union in Tralee, I suppose, would, ha- would have had a long history of working with local charities, very heavily charity-based Student Union. Um, so I was helping them out in various different projects and, and, and programmes, etc., fundraisers. Um, and then with the National Student Union, of course, you're working with national charities and it's on a, on a much larger scale. But when I was in Tralee... Um, with the student union I was communications officer for a year uh, then vice president and then president and the president of the student union every year chooses their uh, charity of choice if you will um, and still I suppose my, my circle of debt would be very small so we've been I suppose our family hasn't really been affected by anything uh, major in terms of I suppose like what other families have gone through in terms of uh, families dealing with cancer etc so it was very much um, when I was asked to choose a charity I had to find something that okay I want this to go to something really worthwhile uh, would always go to my mum for advice like for everything still right. uh, so I was discussing with my mum and she informed me there was two uh, two nuns uh, from Ross Grey from where I'm from so like I said, it's a small town, like 3,000 people. And they had moved to Uganda, it was 40 odd years ago, uh, to set up uh, a school. That was what their project was. 
uh, and they started off basically with uh, no school books and they're just like in um, in fields uh, pretty much to try and give the locals uh, an opportunity at life um, in Uganda at the time and I suppose to a certain aspect even to this day uh, having English having that second language uh, is of huge benefit you kind of open up opportunities for so many more jobs um, and I suppose essentially can can pull yourself and your family out of, of poverty or make the, make yourself I suppose that little bit more comfortable um, so told me about these nuns that had gone over to Uganda and uh, I just thought it was fantastic I was like oh, I really want to know more about this uh, so contacted them uh, and it was very much uh, like an email would be sent and two weeks, three weeks later an email would come back and it was kind of back and forth for a while. The, the fibre wasn't that good in Uganda, I presume. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> no, absolutely not. But I suppose that in time I got to learn about what they were doing and what they were trying to achieve there and how far they had come in the 40 years that they were there. So uh, a nephew of theirs who uh, I would have played music with, I grew up playing traditional music, uh, button accordion, although not so great, uh, grew up playing the button accordion, would be from a, an Irish traditional music family, I suppose yeah, you could say. trad background. Trad yeah. background, yeah. Um, and I suppose their nephew had gone over to them on, on one or two occasions. So I met with him, uh, just kind of asked them what to expect. Could he fill me in on, on I suppose, the nitty gritty stuff of the school and what they're looking for? Um, so he did so that's when I decided I said okay this is going to be my thing I'm going to you know give it everything now and, and, and try send over as much money as possible so like I said the student union itself had a uh, a very successful background of raising um, large sums of money for, for charity um, so we had a really successful Freshers uh, Freshers Fortnight uh, Raise and Give Week Rag Week of course where you have the big party for Monday to Friday which was fantastic and was like so much fun organising that and all the rest of it and then we had fundraisers throughout the year um, so I think at the end of it um, through the various fundraisers during the year and with money also going to we'll say local charities I think we sent over the equivalent of about 12,500 to the school That's tough Go a long was, way there it's, a- uh, it's an astronomical amount of money for them um, so I guess we had sent it over and I was still in the student union in, in Tralee at the time um, and every time I would speak to them I suppose they became friends as such um, they would send us over uh, school grades of the children that we had sponsored uh, the 12 and a half went to um, I think it, 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 it spread out about 22 children in total uh, some a little bit older than others um, a lot of the children in the school would come from um, very very poor backgrounds a lot of them would be orphans um, a lot of them would be Rwandan um, their parents maybe haven't moved to Uganda after the genocide in uh, 91-92 I think it was so it's a bordering country so it kind of a lot of them came over and were trying to I suppose start their lives uh, afresh uh, some of them lost their parents in the Rwandan genocide and were therefore uh, being raised in Uganda um, so I guess like the school it was for extremely poor children um, and I suppose what started off in in a field had grown they had their own buildings they had like a convent up at the top um, they had a building where Sunday mass would take place every Sunday morning um, which is like nothing you've ever seen like a Ugandan Sunday mass is really not like ours um, really like a, a session a celebration if you will praise the lord kind Pra- of stuff. absolutely brilliant stuff um, but I guess she had been asking me to come over uh, for a long time and to kind of like we'd love for you to come over 
and to see what we've done with the money that was sent over. So I guess there was, uh, I felt the need to kind of um, give feedback to the people who had contributed to what we had sent over, which would be, I suppose, safely to say, like the vast majority of students in IT Tralee at the time, uh, friends, family. Um, and then, yeah, I suppose close friends of mine who, who saw that I was passionate about this or um, guys in the college who, I suppose, did their own fundraisers and, of course, members of the student union who were every bit as part of it as I was. Um, so I guess I had done the year with USI uh, and was just exhausted by the end of it. And I said, OK, well, this is a, a perfect time to uh, to kind of go over and see um, I suppose everything that had been described to me in emails and, and in I suppose very few pictures um, over the past year year and a half it had been since we sent it over uh, so went over um, and I suppose very kind of cheesy even to say cliche that it was undoubtedly the the, the most life changing experience I've, I've ever had it was just incredible to see uh, how they live off so little um, but their personalities and, and how happy they are living with what I would consider um, l- literally nothing. They're living off the land. Um, a lot of the people living around the school have uh, no jobs as such. They're getting up in the morning, living in very, very basic homes made of, of mud, if you will, and they're getting up in the morning, uh, tending to their, their, their vegetables outside, um, maybe might eat two meals a day, uh, they eat meat once a year. It's a special occasion. They eat meat once a year. Uh, twice if they're very, very lucky on Christmas Day would be the second. Um, and they're just kind of just getting by. But uh, were undoubtedly the happiest people that I had ever met. And it was just infectious. I was there for just under four months, I think three and a half months. And it was the happiest period of, of my life. It was just unbelievable to be around those people um, and kind of taking in everything that they're about and their way of living and uh, how they view life and yeah I suppose like how happy they were living off the bare essentials and is that just because of the simplicity of, of their life or because they, they, you know, just, they didn't have the stresses of you know traffic and paying bills and, and all that kind that's of exactly what we it. would call normal yeah what we call normal the absolute simplicity of it that I suppose they, they don't have to worry about uh, about mortgages if you if you build a home there um, you basically send uh, notice out to your neighbours and because the homes are so basic they're made from from mud so because the homes are so basic um, they're up in a matter of two or three days so I guess where, where our system here is very much um, you know, a long tedious system of meeting with bank managers and applying for a mortgage and making sure you pay the right people and the right fees etc etc um, their system is very much letting the neighbours know you're building your home everyone comes together you provide uh, I think it's, it was called Waraji which is the, the homemade homemade booze uh, food and it's done in a matter of, of two days and you have your home and just the simplicity of it they, they have very little worries in terms of they don't have to worry about electricity bills or a lot of them don't have to worry about we'll say say jobs as such and they just live very very simple lives and because I suppose there's I suppose it, like, like what you said what we call normal a lot of the stuff that we we stress about and that we worry about when I suppose taken in the larger context of it isn't 
really important. Uh, and that's what that trip taught me that like I suppose and I still do it of course I've reverted back uh, not fully but you know I still find myself you know every now and again giving out or worrying about really silly stuff that really isn't important there's, there's um, nothing on the 800 channels on the telly like exactly <laughs> exactly there's nothing on the 800 channels at the telly or even now at the minute like is in I suppose um, uh, my big thing at the minute is I'd love to own my own home and it's something that not that I stress over, but something it's I suppose it's a it's a a point of my life that I really want to get to. I really want to like own my own home. I think like there's it's uh, uh, as I view it, I'm like oh, see, I'm doing so well in all these other areas, you know, and I'm so happy with this, and I'm so happy with that, and you know, I've got a real nice apartment, and I'm with my girlfriend, you know, three years over three years, and everything's great, and I really love my job, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but I just love my own home. But I think once I had my own home, there will be something else. And I think that's that that's the case with a lot of people. A lot of people our age, I'm I'm thirty now, that there's always something that you feel you're lacking. You always want, you know, something a little bit extra. Oh no, big time! And like yeah. I, I see it in even a kind of a trivial example, but it, it's the exact same thing essentially. When I like when I started this this podcast. You know, at the start, I was getting ten downloads, you know, a week, and I was like, okay, right, it's picking up. And then it was, then it was twenty, and I was like, okay, geez, that's great. And then it was fifty, and I was like, okay, right. And you know, fifty became normal, and then seventy became normal, yeah. and then a hundred became normal, yeah. and I'm up on, you know, four or five hundred a week, and it's, it's, it's normal. And you know that kind of way, yeah. and you're you're always trying to, you're always kind of looking forward, and never, again, you know. You, sick bag at the ready but you're never living in the moment yeah, you know, kind yeah. of way and I, I suppose that the guys in in Uganda are but by, by the sound of things yeah that's exactly it um and I just like everything about the culture was just uh I suppose very different to what I expected and I suppose that's to be expected as well like when I said I was going over there a lot of people are saying oh you know make sure to be to be careful like you know you need to be careful going over there and I was kind of I was like yeah yeah I will be but I suppose I don't know why we had it's the safest place I've ever been like absolutely no hassle never saw so much as a row in the three and a half months yeah, I was there it, it's funny you say that because again um, like when I, when I close my eyes and, and I think of Uganda mm. and of course I have the movies to blame for this but I think you know dodgy lads with sunglasses and AK-47s yeah. you know yeah. thundering through the jungle in trucks and yeah. the village that you describe you know running for the running for cover every time they come through but yeah. obviously not the case well I suppose in uh, there is that part of it as well um, they had a, a president there for um, for a long long time and um, he he would win uh, the outright the, the, the votes for, for president uh, by I suppose numbers that were just not realistic, so it was rigged pretty much course, every yeah, year. Yeah. Uh, I think he was president there for something like fourteen or fifteen years uh, at one stage until I think he lost the last one. Um, but there is that side of it as well. It gets dangerous around around voting time, um, which is I suppose when I would be, I would still be in regular contact with them. Um, around voting time is the only time where I suppose it's not one hundred percent safe to go there. Where I suppose. Uh, people's tempers are at a at a high but I guess we have that we've had that ourselves like here in, in Ireland like we've gone through a period of time where we've gone through that ourselves yeah we kind of forget that I think how yeah. recent that was too how, yeah, how turbulent our own past yeah, was absolutely um but I suppose my the reality of it when I went over there of how they were 
um, I suppose as a culture and as a country compared to what I thought I was going over to could not have been more different extremely honest people I could like as in I could drop my wallet uh, anywhere in the town and they would know uh, like you know the the white man out, yeah. out by the school <laughs> you know he owns that you know and I would be guaranteed that that would come back to me like as in I was seeing how how little these guys were living off and every morning I would wake up I would go out to uh, my front door uh, out the back I was living in the teacher's quarters and out the back the teachers would be tending to their vegetables and stuff like that and there would be uh, an array of I suppose gifts at the front door everything from uh, bananas to fresh vegetables so as I could cook my own meal in the evening time uh, and with me I brought um, I guess you could say like uh, uh, I imported bits and pieces like as in I brought curry paste with me and stuff like that and I suppose with the basics that we had there, the vegetables and you could go into town and buy buy meat, whatever you needed. Um, now, when I say town, that was also extremely basic. Um, very similar to like what you're seeing when you see in the movies, like shacks on the side of the road. That's very much. I wasn't near the capital. Uh, I was out maybe like six six hours from the capital. So very, very much in a in an isolated area of Uganda. And Sorry, just the... The village that you were were based in, say, yeah, was that? And again, forgive my ignorance, but yeah. was that like, tribal or? I mean, can you like your mud buildings with um, I know leaves and branches for a roof type thing, or so, like, what are we talking? So it, running it, water. It was or? Embarara was the name of the area. Okay. So when you say running water, um, a lot of the running water in the area would have been, um, I suppose, put there. Uh, and would have been paid for by, uh, I suppose, by the fundraising that the school was doing, um, which is fantastic in in its own way. So I suppose they were seeking support from people from Ross Gray, who I suppose over the past 40 years have been sponsoring children and sponsoring the school and sending money. So as I suppose these two nuns can not only develop, I suppose, a school in the area, but develop the, the wider community. So I guess you go into Emberara in the, the centre and um, I think there was one hotel and that hotel even had like a swimming pool outside um, but I suppose would be the equivalent of maybe like a one star or a two star here okay. in Ireland which isn't isn't much so very basic um, and that would be for Westerners they would it? Or, yes, okay. yes people there I would say like on business or passing through or for whatever reason they were there uh, but that was the only hotel, uh, to my knowledge. And then I guess in the town, you had modern buildings, okay, um, nothing like over two or three stories. Um, that would be like maybe there was one supermarket um, and that had like, I suppose that was for uh, people who I suppose were relatively comfortable. So let's say like big businessmen or something like that would, would shop in there. Um, I always remember the story like when it first opened, it had a, an escalator on it. Uh, which of course so many of the people there had never seen an escalator and they had to shut it down after like about half an hour because people were just coming in using the escalator oh, and just going in it's just like as in there was just like the whole village had arrived to <laughs> to use this escalator a free um, ride nearly pretty much yeah um, everywhere around that around the supermarket was very much um, like tin shacks right and they would be uh, full of now I'm talking miles in each direction of second-hand clothes, second-hand runners. Um, then you kind of uh, 
go down the back streets and there's uh, butchers, which of course are not like our butchers. The the meat is is hanging up outside in the extreme heat, so you can imagine what the smells are like and, yeah. and what it looks like. So it's very much um, it's like it's like going back in time. Uh, is is what it was being there. Just like I suppose there's there's certain certain parts of it that you kind of oh yeah do you know okay it's it's two thousand and ten or two thousand eleven or whatever it was, um. But then I suppose when you kind of go out even towards the school, it was very much like going back in time. Uh, people's homes then as you're kind of going out to the school, it was very much yeah mud shacks. I'm so, sorry when you say just to clarify when you say going back in time, are we talking you know? 40, 50 years or, you know, five, six hundred years? Oh, I'm talking 30, 40, 50 years. Right, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose one of, the, one of the things that I got the biggest kick out, kick out of while I was there is I brought uh, my laptop. So the laptop that I had at the time. And uh, they had, um, I suppose, certain electricity ports in the, the teacher's quarters. Um, and I suppose phones were coming in at that time as well. So, like I said, there was certain parts of it that were that were modern. Yeah. Um, but then other parts that that were very much the opposite. Um, but in the evening time, as like our entertainment, um, I had one of the the hard drives at the time, and it was full with movies. And I would throw on a movie in the evening time, and the teachers from the teachers' quarters. And in the school, there was only I think five boys at the time. The rest were all girls. So five boys at the time would all pile into where I was living and we would watch a movie. Um, and some of the guys, some of the kids were like nine, ten. The teachers were like mid-twenties to early thirties. And we'd watch the likes of uh, Indiana Jones and um, even movies, I suppose, that at the time weren't, they weren't modern movies, but... Yeah. Uh, to, to see to see the look on their faces to for for kids who are like this is like the first movie that they've seen and the whole idea of this not being real that this has been acted out was just unbelievable like really exceptional like an, an unbelievable experience and I got a real kick out of that so we used to do that in the evening times we'd sit in and watch a movie um I can't remember like the other movies that we watched we watched um uh one of the the more interesting ones was uh we watched uh, the last king of scotland which of of course about Idi Amin Dada who was president of Uganda at yes. a certain stage but would have been very much considered by the western world as a dictator uh but is still very much uh, a popular figure there they still speak highly of them which i found very, um, I suppose, not confusing, but uh, very surprising. They, is, is that because they'd bought into the bullshit, or like they had they swallowed the propaganda, or? Well, I like it's in. They're not Facebook, Twitter users. They're not. They're they don't have access to, I suppose, the media sources that we do. Yeah. Um. So I guess like the stories that went around about Edie, you mean da da. Um. Although they would have heard them. Um, I suppose what they have in front of them is a school that he built here or a hospital that he built here because of course he would have named a lot of them after himself of course like Idi, Idi Amin Hospital um, or, or what have you so they remembered him fondly in terms of what he had kind of uh, brought to Uganda um, which was strange because we see him as this evil dictator um, so that was fascinating to watch that with them um, and then Hotel Rwanda was another one that we watched, which of course I, I said the, the school would have had a very, um, would have had a lot of students who would have come from Rwanda. So watching that film with uh, with the teachers, um, they would have never seen it before, and I suppose and and them seeing it in a, a sort of structure of of it being laid out in a film and on a screen of what happened, um, was very very interesting. Jesus, I'd well believe it. Yeah, yeah my yeah. God, um, 
one thing that uh, sprung to mind there earlier when you were saying you went over there and, and you saw where the, where the money had went, I think people these days, myself included, right, rightly or wrongly so, have almost an aversion to giving to charities these days yeah. because there is, I don't know, an aura that you know, only half of 1% goes to where it's supposed to go. Have you found that you've worked with different charities and you're in that kind of charity loop? Is that as big a problem as I might have been led to believe or not? Or are there there organisations that are better than others that you could recommend? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I suppose the thing with, with, with charities is, of course, like bits and pieces have come out in previous years in terms of charities not spending the money correctly. Um, but I suppose that kind of darkens the the reputation of so many of them when it is a very small, I suppose, not just a small minority of them. Um, I guess like there's so many decent charities out there and so many registered charities who spend the money correctly. And um, I guess for the school, for example, um, they would have had an account of exactly where every single cent went. Um, which I suppose even like when people in Roscoe even send over minor donations whether it be 20 euros 30 euros they, they basically get back to them and tell them exactly how that money was spent uh, but there is of course like I said people have that perception of charities but I suppose my my personal opinion of it is that a lot of it is because uh, they're just not educated in, in the area so to speak Is in a lot of people would rather say um, sure all charities are the same and that's kind of like the, the excuse they have then for not donating or for not, I suppose, giving either time or money or any sort of effort into benefiting the lives of people who might be less fortunate than they are. So it's so much easier to turn around and say, like, you know, sure, all charities are the same. If I give if I give a charity money, they're just going to spend it on, you know, whatever, uh, rather than actually looking deeper into it and finding a charity that you're passionate about, finding, a, I suppose, a registered charity that spends their money correctly uh, and donating to them. But of course, there is, like, as in bits and pieces have come out over the years, various charities who um I suppose who haven't who haven't I suppose spent the money wisely. Um but for every one charity that comes out there's a hundred, two hundred, three hundred who are very, very strict on how they spend it and spend it wisely. Of course, yeah. yeah. So how long were you in Uganda? So just shy of four months. And about three and a half months. Did you jump out of Africa then or did you move around or no, I kinda moved you go from around there? a bit. So um I guess while I was there, um we had a, a parent day. I was lucky to be there for for Parents' Day in the school. Now, um, like I said, a lot of the kids there they didn't uh, they didn't have parents. A lot of them were orphans. A lot of them, I suppose, on Parents' Day would have had guard guardians coming to to look after them. It was a boarding school as well. It wasn't a day school, so a lot of the kids there, um, basically, uh, they might not have had anyone. I suppose once they they entered the school, or or I suppose the the level of support they had outside of the school was was minuscule. And on Parents' Day, I met. Uh, a woman who had two girls in the school. She was uh, a Tutsi. Um, so I suppose for, for people who are unaware of it, in, in Rwanda during the genocide, there was the, the Hutus and the Tutsis, two separate sides. Uh, there's a third tribe, can't think of the name off the top of my head, but the, the main trouble was between the, the Hutus and the, the Tutsis. Um, bits and pieces that happened in the past but at the time the 91-92 genocide uh, the Hutus very much pretty much wiped out the Tutsis within the country and a lot of them fled and fled to, to other countries um, at the time when this was happening this lady fled to Uganda um, and it started I suppose building up her, her life in Uganda um, had two uh, beautiful girls 
and had put them into school in Coloma Primary School, in the school in which I was volunteering in. Um, it was around that time as well, and, and over the course of a number of years, uh, the current president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, was trying, I suppose, calling for Tutsi to return to the country. So he was, there was like an outcry for if, if you left you know, Rwanda during the genocide, um, it's now safe to come home and to, to start your life uh, back here in Rwanda. So she did. So she moved back um, but left the girls in, in Uganda. So I got to meet her when she came on Parents' Day and um, I walked with her for a while and she filled me in on, uh, I suppose, this fascinating part of history that uh, that I knew, I suppose, very little of, but at the same time was was just blown away by by meeting someone who had lived through that experience. Um I think it was it was about eight hours, nine hours away. And she invited me. She said, if you know, if you're you're free some weekend before you leave the school, uh, we'd love to have you to our home. So I thought this was a fantastic idea to see a different part of Africa um, to kind of go to a country that I'd never been to and to learn more about, I guess, what she had gone through and uh, and Rwanda as a country. So it wasn't long after that, uh, hopped on the bus um I would say maybe it was a 20-seater bus. There was easily 50, 60 people on it. Uh, like what you see in the movies, like chickens going up and down the aisles. Like <laughs> thing. It was just absolutely mental, uh, but brilliant. And uh, while I was on the way, I read a book called Left to Tell. Uh, and it was a book, the, the author's name, uh, Immaculate Illabagiza. Um, I'm not going to even attempt to spell that. But the book is called Left to Tell. And it's basically a survivor story of, of someone who survived the, the genocide. I was trying to take in as much as I possibly could. So as I, I had the basics. Yeah, before a bit, a bit of context. There. Exactly. Um, so um, it's a, a really tough read, but one that I would I would highly recommend um, uh, people have a read of or people try to find. You can find it in Easton's in Dublin. I found it a, a couple of times. I've come across it a couple of times. Uh, but arrived there anyway. Uh, off the bus and she was waiting there for me exactly where she said she would be um, and I got to spend a really fascinating weekend with her uh, learning about what had happened um, and it really just was like something else like seeing a country very much in recovery um, where there's very much a, an eerie atmosphere still um, when you walk down the street there's a very clear physical difference uh, between a Hutu and a Tutsi I was just going to actually ask yeah yeah, yeah. So I think the, the, the Tutsis, there was, uh, they were partly French, so uh, taller, paler and had, uh, I suppose, slimmer features, I suppose you could say. Uh, the Hutus, I suppose, the opposite, uh, smaller, darker, uh, wider faces. Now, again, you know, um, you'd come across quite the opposite in, 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 uh, within in some the cases, groups, yeah, within yeah. the groups. But this was the, the general, I suppose, the overall description. Um, so it was very much a country, I suppose, in recovery. Um, but got to, to spend the weekend with her and her family uh, telling me all about their story and what they had gone through and currently trying to re- rebuild their lives and what I suppose Rwandans and, and Tutsis coming back to the country were currently trying to do and I guess for people who um, who were living there there was this abundance of new people coming back to the country to, to start their lives afresh um, and it just really was a really unbelievable experience and sorry you said Rwandans there so are who 
Hutus and Tutsis, they're both Rwandan. They're both Rwandan. There's no such thing as a Rwandan which would be separate to a, a Hutu or a Tutsi, is there? I don't believe so. Okay, okay, Hutu, sorry. Hutu and Tutsis are the, are the tribes. I think there's three main tribes. Um, I think the third is, is almost like a, a, a pygmy tribe, if you will. Okay. And then there's the Hutus and the Tutsis, which would be the main one. They make up the, the main bulk of the population. Um, so it just was like just an unbelievable period of time. Um, they brought me to the uh, Genocide Museum, um, which was uh, still to this day the, the absolute worst place that I've ever been in my entire life. <laughs> Believe I think, it. Yeah, they Fuck. lasted. They lasted about ten minutes, um, and they they left because obviously a bit close to home. A bit close to home, but the museum itself leaves absolutely nothing to the imagination. So. Uh, they don't try and scale anything down or um, there's no, you know, we'll say a section that's safe for children. Um, everything is is as it was. Um, videos, uh, photographs and the descriptions of what happened. And then there's a section of the museum for the, um, I suppose, in memory of uh, the children who died. And um, that was that was real tough. That was uh, pictures of, of the children who died and descriptions of their favourite things and, you know, what they like to do. And, Jesus. Um, it really was, I suppose, and what I took from it was that it was, um, they didn't want to leave anything to the imagination because they were like, this is what happened. Let's not, you know, let's sugar not dumb it down. It. Yeah, let's yeah. not sugarcoat it. Let's, let's show it exactly how it happened. Um, and uh, to my knowledge, it's a requirement that school students visit this museum, Rwandan school students visit this museum, so as they never forget um, the atrocities that happened there. Um, but but real tough, and I suppose like, as in, I'd done the, 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 the killing fields in, in Cambodia, um, which are, are horrific in their own right, but this place was really uh, something else. Um, but absolutely fascinating to to go there and to learn about them. And um, like when I say home, it was it was I suppose a little bit more modern to where I was in Uganda. Um, a little bit more modern, but it was just cement and cement rooms with uh, basic bedware and no electricity in in this home. Um, my shower was basically um a communal communal shower that the the I suppose the houses in that area used. So I was kind of pointed in a direction I said, you know, washing facilities and I was given a bucket and I went down and filled up my bucket of water and just like a, a, a cup, if you will, and you kind of stand in this room with just this endless black pit in the middle the size of a football and you just pour the water over yourselves and just very, very simple. Um and like when you think about it now, it's like, oh my goodness, like it's in how, how did I do that? But there was something very, uh, very beautiful about it that like their, their life was there was so simple. Um, and it was just, just fantastic. And again, you know, I've never been to anywhere remotely like it. Mm. Um, and again, I, my, my mind's eye is kind of skewed from watching movies and, and whatever else and the different misconceptions that, I, that, that, that would give you. But is is disease rife? Is there is are parasites a problem, or or is that just my, you know, Western bigotry coming spewing out of me? Uh, to make AIDS is still a, a major problem. Okay, uh, over there. And is that a is that? And I didn't really want to get into it about the nuns and the chapel and that whole end of things because I've I've yeah. my own kind of beef yeah. with religions going to the to the yeah. third world. 
is the AIDS thing a problem because of that or well I suppose I, I, be, I can only I suppose I don't want to be speaking on behalf of them as such but I, they would be very uh, pro uh, teaching um, I suppose the local community about how to avoid um, I suppose how to avoid uh, contracting the disease now whether that be you know using contraception or whatever that might be I'm not sure exactly what they're going to but a huge part of what they do is educating the local community in terms of I suppose from preventing the problem from getting any worse okay yeah um, I guess there are that yeah, there is like is in uh, disease over there but I guess when we see um I suppose Africa on the television, whether it be the concern ads or the choker ads, you see kind of, you know, the disease ridden parts of Africa or like a 15, 30 second clip of, 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 of um, people going through, I suppose, life threatening diseases. But uh, it's, it's, it's just not the case. Like when you go over there, you see a very, very different part of it. Um, and I suppose you have a very, very different experience once you're over there yourselves. But to, in my experience there, I didn't see a whole pile of it. I know that HIV um, is still a huge issue. And a lot of the kids, as I said, in the in the school that were there who are no longer with parents have lost their parents through HIV. Right. And yeah. the, the kids, you just reminded me there when you, when you mentioned the kids, how do they compare age for age? Like is, you know, is a is a 13 year old over there the equivalent of a, a 20 year old over here? Or, this, you know, is it the same there, thereabouts? Or like, again, and this is just my own stupid, you know, sheltered, privileged perception that a, a 13 year old over there would be an adult in comparison to a 13 year old in terms of what they have to do in terms of the lives that they and lead d- is it uh, well yeah that and just in in general I suppose do you know that kind of way like are, are do like is I suppose what I'm trying to get at is this idea of a teenager I view personally my misconception of it is that that's almost like a Western thing. You know, you're in, in Africa, again, this is my own kind of ignorant, yeah, uneducated yeah. view of it, but, you know, you, you're a child and then once you kind of hit puberty, you're more or less an adult. They don't have that kind of 10-year or closer to 20-year now in Ireland yeah. kind of buffer zone between being a, a child and an yeah. actual adult. Is that is I that the case like, at all? Uh, in, in some cases, I guess, like, uh, say, for example, if the, the family is, is relatively poor, if they're still, I suppose, lucky enough to have their parents, some of, uh, some of the adults have to be convinced to send their child to school. So again, it's a huge part of what these these nuns do. So to send their child to school, to basically say, look, as in, if you send your child to school, um, you're you're giving them a really good chance at life, like as in, in a really good opportunity to, uh, to get themselves a decent job or a half decent job in the future. But I guess uh, they're living very much in the present, as we discussed already. So for a lot of these parents, what they're doing is their their child, regardless of how young they are, there are jobs available for them, whatever that might be, helping in a field or whatever. Um, so I guess it's it's less money coming into the household if their child is in school. Um, now, primary education is a luxury there, is very much a luxury there secondary level education is a huge luxury so you only really get to secondary level education to get to go to secondary school um if you are exceptionally bright okay so co- college education isn't even a thing or uh, it is a thing uh but uh there would be a very tiny minority who would get that far i suppose it just goes to show that it's a real 
it's a real cut and dry example of the, the poverty trap, I suppose. Yeah, you know kind absolutely. Of yeah, absolutely. And then again, there's there's huge emphasis put on, I suppose, the guys going to college. Um, a lot of them would study medicine. Uh, you know, if you get if you get to a point where you're you're fortunate enough to have reached a point where you're you're at college level, a lot of these guys would study medicine. And then it's, I suppose, um, it's up to these guys then on whether they stay and decide to help their home country or they could move somewhere like Ireland or the UK or pretty much anywhere in the world with their, their doctorate and earn 10, 15, 20 times the money that they would, uh, if not even more than that, than they'd be earning in Uganda. So there's that huge problem as well in terms of retaining the guys who, who reach that point to stay and benefit Uganda rather than kind of move abroad. And, and be and an earn. example for the next generation, exactly. of course, the, the, yeah. the brain drain as it's called. Yeah, yeah. So you were you went to Rwanda and you met that the the, the mother of the of the, the kids at the school that you were in. Did you go? Where did you go from there? Say, um, I suppose after that, um, I I I did Tanzania while I was there as well, but nothing too fascinating fascinating to report on there. It was very much just a, I suppose a religious excursion. I got to see a very a small a very small part of Tanzania. Um, but then I suppose most of my that was only for for two or three days as well, like a weekend trip. Uh, but most of my time was was um, spent at the school. Um, so I guess uh, at the school um, I would take PE class. So I would take a class uh, in the morning and a couple in the afternoon, do sports with them, play games. And I had brought over equipment, which was another part of when I went over. I brought over suitcases full of uh, football jerseys, uh, mainly Arsenal jerseys, um, like my old football jerseys and football jerseys from friends. Uh, some of them new, some of them secondhand, but still in really good condition. Um, and that was something they didn't they didn't really have there either. Like as in, they have the you know the the knockoffs, but uh, these are like, like good jerseys with names in the back and everything like that. So a real treat to bring them over to the teachers and and some of the parents as well. Um, and then doing maintenance, I guess, around the the school. So like everything from developing the playground. My my sister's um, an architectural technician and her husband's an architect. So she had designed, uh, given me I suppose the blueprints, if you will of uh, playground equipment that could be built uh, using metal so myself and the nuns having this these plans uh, brought this to the local metalwork store who built um, I suppose the, the what we call monkey bars climbing frames etc yeah, yeah. etc so the guys are building these they have the dimensions they have absolutely no idea what they're building it just looks like complete <laughs> rubbish like and we get to the metalwork store and we're kind of showing them that this is like this is solely for fun. It has no other major purpose. Yeah, no than, function, really. Yeah, no function other than this is fun for children. Um, and then we brought it to the school and, like you're saying, it, it, it was a half an hour had gone by before even one child had got to go and it was just like the teachers and the adults, the school completely emptied when we kind of brought the equipment, which is still there um, to this day, brought the equipment to the school because it was just, it was something that they, they didn't have before, these climbing frames and monkey bars and it was just brilliant to see and to be able to send those pictures home from something that started in, I suppose, started on a laptop, putting a few bits and pieces together. Um, Melanie be really handy with bits and pieces like that. And then to see it kind of come to fruition and to see it up in the playground. And it was fantastic. Yeah, um, and to know it's still there now. Yeah, and to know it's still there. So it's, it's everything from painting playground equipment. And I did a lot of cooking while I was there as well, of bits and pieces I had brought over. Um 
and for the nuns as well like is in cooking for the nuns I think it was Friday I used to cook for them um I just stuff that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't be be used to um it wouldn't be used to eating uh, another part of being over there is I lost a, a huge amount of weight but it wasn't from not eating in fact I, I I'd nearly go to say is in I was eating so much more regularly than I had, than I would eat at home but there's absolutely zero preservatives in what I was eating. It was literally dug up in the garden that morning. It was, it was, a, it was actual food. It was actual food. <laughs> and um, it was. it's the only time in my life, the only time in 30 years where I would like, I'd be shirtless in the mirror and be like, yeah, I look all right. Like I said, I look, I look good. Like there's not like a belly there or yeah, yeah. hanging off me. Because um, it was just like putting nothing but, really good food into my body like greens and uh, beans and nuts and uh, like fresh meat with absolutely nothing but like you know no preservatives no uh, artificial colours or flavourings nothing for three and a half months amazing Uh, tell a lie bar the odd local beer um, (laughs) which was real good stuff which would be on the doorstep the odd morning as well Uh, you bring down your bottles and they'd they'd pop the beer in for you uh, for next to nothing like 15 cent 20 cent whatever it was a litre of beer um, and unbelievable stuff like different strength to what we'd have here that's the only kind of treat um, that I that I have over the three and a half four months um, and it was just good it's like it's, you know the way like we talk about it here all the time and people talk about like like, like even myself like the, the, the benefits of healthy eating and this has that and like do you know it's it's not relatively hard to, to stick to a very strict diet here but over there, you have absolutely no choice. You're sticking to a strict diet because you can't uh, order an Indian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or yeah. you can't like you know get a Chinese delivered to your door. So you're eating what's available around your 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 living quarter. Um, and it was just brilliant. Look, it's just complete transformation on how I felt, my energy levels, and and very much how I looked. And what were what's the the staple crop or geographically whereabouts is. Uh Rwanda and Uganda uh, East Africa okay so the bo- along the equator there thereabouts is it it's in the tropics or it's it's bang on the equator so uh, the funny ass that on the way to the school you might have seen this um, you might have seen it on the internet a couple of times they have like a, a cylindrical uh, monument when you're passing through in a certain parts of Uganda where you can stand in and it's basically they're saying this is this, the north it, and southern yeah, hemisphere yeah and you're kind of looking at it and you're saying that, ah, you know, like it's in, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, a, not a tourist trap because they don't charge you any money for it, but it's a gimmick. Uh, but then there's the guys on either side who, what they'll do is they have like a, a, a basin of water and they have, they basically pour the, the water in, they like to have like maybe a flower sitting on the top and they move it to one side of the equator and it will go down clockwise and literally within a couple of metres, it's that accurate they'll do the same thing again and it'll go down anti-clockwise and they have the kind of arrows on it to kind of show you the direction it's going down. So it was just fascinating to see how accurate it was but it's bang on the equator. The equator goes through Uganda if you will. Right and what is that? I always thought that was a bit of an urban myth that the toilets in Australia flushed you know anti-clockwise and where is it clockwise? I've never been to Australia so I couldn't answer that but I know in Uganda it's I've seen it myself it's it's within the space of a couple of metres if even a couple of metres they go one way anti-clockwise over the other side clockwise it's fascinating yeah you'll see loads you type that into YouTube there's a number of videos of guys showing tourists how it's done or showing examples of uh, of like a flower petal going down or whatever might be but it's it's bang on the button yeah so it's uh, fascinating to see so 
along the equator, presumably somewhere year-round, basically? Yeah, sunny year-round. Now, I was there, I think it was, was it around September time? So, again, I was surprised at the weather, like as in, um, I was expecting to go over there and, and melt um, but it was it was a very comfortable heat around right. that time of year. Now, like just like gorgeous, like really really sunny. But they had like is in, I suppose extreme showers as well. Where when we say like it's raining in Ireland, we kind of get like three hundred and sixty five days of 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 rain. You know, kind of um, at some stage of the day. Uh, but over there, it would be absolutely gorgeous weather. And then you could pretty much clock when it was going to rain. So depending on the season, the nuns would be able to say, oh, it's going to, you know, there'd be a rain down out at about half four and it would book it. And if you were outside in that, you were just drenched head to toe in a matter of seconds, like extreme heavy rain. Um, But like beautiful weather, like absolutely perfect. Yeah, perfect, yeah. Perfect, yeah. So was that you done in Africa then or did you? That was me done. So I was there and like I said, I'd still be in regular contact with them. That was me done there. Um, I'm sorry is that, that's via email presumably and, and again as you mentioned earlier you send an email two weeks later you might yeah, get a reply kind of thing via email and now text message um, but uh, I suppose they would still send uh, updates on each of the children sponsored so we kind of do a, a, a top up fundraiser each year myself and my mum my mum like I said we come from a traditional music uh, background and my mum would do a concert every year, every two years. I think it's just a concert maybe every every second year. Uh, but every year we do some sort of fundraiser for the school and send it over. And we would always get updates back on, uh, like I said, they're very, very careful on how they spend the money. And always update us on, on how the children are doing. Um, do you know, do you know where, where they're going, as in if they're going to, they think they're going to make it to, to secondary school or what it is. So um, it's fantastic to see that as well. So and I suppose encourages us to kind of keep the ball rolling on it as oh, well. Oh yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah, because I suppose for me being there and and um, I suppose supporting my family and my friends, supporting it for a number of years, and even in work they do as well. Like as in when I ran a fundraiser my first year in work last year, um, they were very supportive in terms of uh, donating etc. So we had that close connection to it. So that'll be there, please God, for for a long, long time yet. Left Africa came home in time for Christmas Um, came home in time for Christmas had Christmas at home and then left for for Asia so uh, I suppose completely different to uh, to, to, to Africa like completely as, as you would other side of the world completely different culture and all the rest of it but I was lucky I started off travelling around with uh, four friends so doing I suppose all the bits and pieces in Asia we arrived in Bangkok very quickly left for Cambodia. Uh, did most of Cambodia. Um, down southern Vietnam, all up the coast of Vietnam, into northern uh, northern Thailand, which is Chiang Mai. Um, and then I suppose what the original plan was, was that me and uh, one of the guys would stay and maybe work for a couple of months, see if we could find something for a couple of months. Uh, the other two guys, one was en route to Australia, and the other was uh, on the way home from Australia. So he kind of met us there when we started the whole trip. But uh, another really fascinating trip, Cambodia, another country that's very much like going back in time, like is in extreme poverty, uh, but very, very happy people. Um, and just, I suppose, just amazing to, to, to see uh, a country that is not fully developed yet. I suppose they're not even close. Um, but that there's so many mind-boggling and striking things to see 
um, when you kind of uh, scope them out. Yeah, I, I, the places there, like you know, Cambodia, Thailand, that that part of the world, as you kind of outlined, would be not chocker block, but they'd be very used to people kind of stopping on their way to and from Australia. And yeah. like, I know half a dozen people who've spent time over there. Uganda and Rwanda would obviously be slightly different. So just to skip back to to Africa, how how were you? perceived and received by the the people on a kind of day-to-day basis were you the yeah. were you a novelty white person or yeah yeah so they used to call me mzungu, uh, mzungu. which is which is the word for for foreigner or white man right um, but very much i suppose if i had gone to um entebbe if i had gone to the capital um they have people passing through like businessmen passing through people there I suppose like American tourists or, or what not um, so they'd see the odd white person um, in in Emberara uh, they, they don't you're very much it's, a, it's six hours away from the capital there's no reason for no real reason for, for foreigners to be there um, so uh, yeah I suppose you could say very much a novelty um, what I found like is in uh, the, the, the feel of your skin and your hair they were fascinated with no this. Way. So quite often, if I maybe I could be sitting down like reading a book or um, whatever I, I was doing and a hand would come up and kind of brush off my hair and I'd turn around and there'd be four or five kids gone running <laughs> just to kind of see like what it feels like is in because it looks so, I suppose it, it, it looks like it's of a, a completely different texture, I suppose, in their own and completely foreign to them. And skin would be another one. I, in terms of like because our skin feels different so they're like you know they want to know like what it like you know what it feels like so there's a fascination with that but um i think the general they knew i was there to uh, to assist in some way so um i received nothing but but love while i was there like and and when i left um i i i received these gifts like a very very simple gifts uh, to some I suppose to ourselves and, and, and we still have them there home in Ross Grey but um, to the people who gave them to me um, the, uh, quite a lot of considerable amount of work or even of uh, money would have gone into these I received everything from a chicken which of course I couldn't take with me a live chicken <laughs> so so we that's what we had that evening that was our final meal before I left uh, hand woven baskets you know for, for holding beans uh, we use it to, to hold our, our tea bags and our coffee and bits and pieces at home uh, so just these like amazing gifts and like um, very much focused on, on, on the mother so if you're a if you're a if they perceive you as a, as a nice person um, it's your uh, you know the credit goes to your mother so your mother must be fantastic if you were if you're here helping us uh, your it's, mother must be it's fantastic thanks to your mom, it's yeah. thanks to your mum so um, despite the fact that she wasn't there she was sent loads of lovely like it's in uh, like hand knitted scarves and, and bits and pieces which were just uh, magical it's a lovely um, sentiment though isn't it because I'd, I'd never I'd never the thought has never entered my head to get mm. someone who I wanted to give a gift yeah, you know, give them something for their mom. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. But there's something really cool yeah. about that. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. And like, I suppose when I arrived home, like I said, my mom would be my my main supporter in in everything that I do, and I'd be very very close to my mom. So I suppose it's fair to say that she was a huge part in me going there in terms of helping me with every aspect of of the the fundraising and running her own fundraisers. And and I would even say, like I suppose, as I 
kind of went on to travel in other parts and went on to kind of try and, and build a career here she very much kept that ball rolling in terms of uh, supporting the school and keeping contact with the school as well so uh, so she deserved every bit of the credit I suppose you could say um, but yeah like it's in like I said I was coming with a lot of uh, bits and pieces that um, that they had never seen before like I said like with the movies and uh, I looked completely different and um like these guys like as in the teachers as well when I would when I would talk to them I suppose my opinion on on certain things would be very different to to their opinion on things and I guess I wouldn't um uh I wouldn't dumb it down I'd give them my honest opinion if we were talking about uh religion or politics or um anything really like I said anything that you kind of talk about with your with with your mates over a tea or over a coffee yeah um so it was kind of fascinating to see their opinion from from people who live on on the other side of the world and it kind of brings you back to um like because it was it was a monastery i suppose i was living in a such and um i think it was a week before i left i had said to the nuns like i would really like to do something nice uh with just the teachers and uh, these guys work ex- extremely hard um and I guess you could say like they were very selective on very very selective on the teachers that they, they selected to teach in the school but I would say all the teachers that I worked with there they really wanted the best for these kids and now I'm not saying the teachers here aren't the same but I suppose teaching here is a, it's a it's a career Course. Uh, and you get good teachers and bad teachers but the guys I worked with there um, they had got to a point where they were you know they had an education and they were teachers and they really wanted the best for these kids. I wanted to give them the best possible opportunity in life. Uh, so we're super passionate about their job and worked really, really hard. Um, so I wanted to do something for the teachers before I left. So um, there was, I can't even call it a nightclub. Um, <laughs> it was basically a massive shed. And they sold <laughs> like whiskey by the bottle and loads of beer and stuff like that. So uh, I cleared it with the, the two sisters beforehand and they were saying, that's fine, please be back at a, you know, a reasonable hour. And I think it was, and was it the uh, the Friday maybe? And then there was like an, an evening class the following day and the Saturday or whatever it might be. So they, they didn't have two rough schedules, but to take them to that and to kind of like, uh, you know, the way you kind of see it, you see it in guys doing it here in nightclubs and they take it and they get like a table and they have all like the, the expensive vodkas and stuff like that. It wasn't that at all, but like you're saying, I've, I really felt like a VIP kind of walking in there and they did as well, which was the, the real magical part of it. And we walked in and we got our, our booze and had our whiskey and stuff like that and had a dance. And I suppose um, time for, for, uh, for, for fun, we'll say like outside of work um, and leisurely activities like that, like going to nightclubs and bars and stuff like that. Uh, is not very high on the agenda over there, as you can imagine. Um, so this was like uh, something that none of them had ever done before. Like some of the teachers had never been to. Now, when I'm saying nightclub, I'm talking it's a it's a, a shed, um, no lights or anything <laughs> like that. So like it's just, it's very very basic with like isn't it with their music playing in the background. And I was but just going to ask, their kind of traditional music. So their traditional music, yeah, 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 yeah played, played through speakers or speakers, live, or, yeah, 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 yeah okay. speakers. Um, I suppose what I forgot to mention as well as I was saying like there are some parts of it that are modern um, for the men uh, the the time you get off so you work your your hours of the week are, are seven days a week it's not the Monday to Friday nine to five what we have yeah um, they know nothing of that over there it's, it, it's seven day a week you have your job it's seven days the time you get off work uh, a week is the period in which your premiership team plays football so the premiership football is 
huge over there. The English uh, Premiership football. English Premiership football. Huge in Uganda. Uh, and huge in Rwanda as it's well. Bizarre. It is bizarre. It's, it's, it's mental. And the time you get off work is when your Premiership team is playing. <laughs> so um, we walked... Uh, I think it was the bones of maybe 20-25 minutes through fields and fields and fields to get to this hut um, we were going to watch I can't remember who was playing I think it was was it Arsenal Newcastle or something like so that that is so surreal and it's in it's in a mud hut but like there's like a, a a wooden desk at the front and you can buy snacks before you go in if you want to buy snacks but you pay like a, a minor fee going in um, it was a mud hut with uh, wooden seats just like benches going yeah, the way back. The TV, I would say, was no bigger than uh, an iPad, maybe slightly bigger than an iPad. So you really had to crowd around it. And there was just a wire kind of coming out of it out the back, tiny TV, a wire going up the walls, coming out somewhere on the roof, I presume, and was picking up uh, Arsenal versus Newcastle. However they were doing it. <laughs> but the, all the guys from the local village would come and watch them and they'd have, um, I suppose over here, you know, they don't show the three o'clock kickoffs and stuff like that. But they show them over there because it's different licences or whatever. So the time you got off work was when your, your premiership football team was playing. And what I forgot to mention about Rwanda is when I was staying with this lady, her nephew picked me up one night and he said, OK, we're going to go watch football. Um, and of all the football matches I've ever been to, I've never experienced an atmosphere like like what we bought. It was Man United versus Arsenal. It was uh, the season that Robin van Persie had signed for United. So there was that um, from myself as a as a lifelong Arsenal fan. That bitterness of watching him play for another team, and we were underground. This is like in 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 the middle of nowhere in Rwanda. Um, it's it's about eight o'clock nine o'clock at night. And if I recall correctly, he got a goal from a header and it was an important goal for United, important, important points. So ran off celebrating and I was just, but the atmosphere inside in there was just unbelievable. They, they live for it. They, they're absolutely obsessed with the premiership football and they all have their premiership teams. So if you can imagine uh, Man City, you know, maybe the, the teams kind of coming up at the time uh, were hugely popular because I suppose the more competitions that you're, your team are playing the and more, the more time, time you get off you're work. getting off work so it would be very common to, to kind of not like here to kind of switch so one yeah, season yeah. <laughs> you could be supporting Man United and then the next season you could be supporting Man City or whoever Whoever's you thought yeah whoever you thought was going to do uh, pretty well so that was a, a fascinating side but but um, I guess like we were right next door to England here and like I used to fly over to London quite a bit to see to see the games when I was working in Tralee because you can fly out of Farron Four Airport in no time uh, but never experienced an atmosphere or uh, obsession with football like I experienced there it was really very very cool no way that's yeah. insane yeah uh, so sorry to jump back forward then again you're in Asia and you did the what work did you get did you say or did you get work you were looking so for work I, for I a couple of months I started working yeah so we kind of we travelled around a bit we did Cambodia and then we started we did Vietnam which is which is very very different um, I suppose I should know I don't um, Vietnam is, is, is I suppose you could say very modern compared to Cambodia um, and I suppose you could say to, to, to most of the parts that we went to in Vietnam were, were much more modern than, than parts of Thailand that I've been to that, that I guess wouldn't be too far from it um, I guess the war that took place there and, and, and funding afterwards to kind of build the country back up um, but a uh, beautiful country 
but I had been to Thailand the first time 10 years before that. So I had gone uh, for like a four week spurt, like kind of off the cuff and gone and I fell in love with it. And I always said, you know, if, like as in if I was to ever to go and live in a different country, I'd love to give Thailand a try. So as I said, one of my mates went to Australia. The other guy went back to Ireland, having lived in Australia for a year or two. And two of us stayed in, in Thailand and we decided we'd, we'd try fine work in Bangkok. <laughs> and that was like, when I say we were roughing it for a long time, we were really, really, really roughing it. So we kind of uh, booked into a hostel in Bangkok. Uh, cheapest hostel we could find, like 20 bed dorm, um, none of your possessions safe. So <laughs> trying to find somewhere like keeping an eye on them all the time. Uh, and... Uh, I think we had like one, like we had a shirt and a pair of pants, like one each between us. And we would go out looking for jobs during the day. Um, so loads of, I suppose, teaching opportunities over there because I suppose it's safe to say it's still very much a developing country. So loads of teaching opportunities over there. So um, we got our first teaching job, but they offered us a role. It was maybe 45 minutes outside Bangkok. So they said... Uh, the pay is is, uh, is not great, uh, but we'll provide you with free accommodation. So we said, okay, look, we're we're running out of money here. Like this is sounds like a good deal to us. So we took it. So <laughs> the free accommodation was very much we'd walk in and the evening time, we would spend maybe ten minutes killing the the mosquitoes. Like Lovely. just um, uh trying to get as many out the door as we possibly could or you know just kind of swatting them away but trying to it was just very very basic uh ground floor apartment in a village outside of bangkok and we teach in the morning and some of the afternoon sometimes in non-air conditioned rooms uh, and that was kind of how we were getting by so to speak yeah i suppose we we, we knew it was a, a transition period it was like okay we'll get we'll get something better in a while but this is just the kind of so as we can stay here and I suppose we made our own fun do you know what I mean we were in a different country uh, living among uh, a completely different culture trying out new foods and stuff like that uh, this was with my friend Shane and he would be very easy going and open minded as well I lived with him in college so um, I think in the three years we were living together in college there was if there was even one argument I'd be surprised so I knew he was very easy to live with very easy to get along with so we kind of went through that for a couple of months until we found um, our first proper jobs like proper paid jobs uh, and we worked in a, in a in a school now bearing in mind neither of neither of us had any teaching experience um, our experience of of English was growing up speaking English as our as our first language yeah so it's kind of it's baffling in a way that you can secure a job um, in secondary schools um, teaching English with no programme. You're just kind of told, teach, you know, go teach English with no kind of programme or curriculum uh, to go with. You kind of have to pretty much roll with your own. Um, so that's what we did, I suppose, like as in we were both college educated, so... Um, made the best out of it as in well, I reckon we did a, a pretty good job of it. we got our first proper jobs I suppose and then with the first proper jobs came our first uh, proper apartment so uh, we got like a, a condo I think we were on the the 13th 14th floor nice view um, we were close to like the nightclubs the bars and stuff like that 
we had a pool outside and stuff like that and we just were living the life uh, and it was just brilliant and I suppose in the time that we were there um, would have travelled around to uh, both other parts of Asia and uh, and other parts of Thailand kind of uh, trying to get to see as much as we possibly could um, but just an absolute dream to I suppose to be over there with a with a close friend living in uh, in a country the complete opposite to your own in every aspect and every every part of it is just the complete opposite to to Ireland um, and to be living there and working there and taking it all in was I guess what I had wanted to do and what I was trying to get to and, and achieve for years um, to kind of be living and working full time over somewhere yeah and your fascination of food have that kicked in at this stage or yeah I guess like Thai, Thai people are they're extremely passionate about about their food Um it's an obsession for them so they're extremely passionate about their food um and have i guess i suppose now i would consider irish food uh, relatively bland i suppose i would struggle to give you 10 original irish recipes whether they have hundreds and hundreds of of various dishes that they'll be able to name off in no time so i guess uh, the area that we that we had first started off in it was very much uh like there was there was zero English out there where we were now it's not a it's you would find English speakers around the country and it's becoming more popular in schools but I guess a lot of the older generation would have very little English so we were going into restaurants um, and the menus were in in Thai script of course so you've no hope of translating them even if you did have your your phone or internet Um, so we're very much walking around these restaurants looking at things looking for things that look relatively edible yeah. Um, pointing at them and saying like you know this is what we want and they'd bring it out they'd pronounce it for us you know they'd say like you know cow pad guy or cow pad gung they'd pronounce it we'd take it down or jot it down as best we could and if we liked it we'd know you know we'd have it written down we'd be like you know red soup with some sort of fish and white noodles you know you know give it a, you know, a score you know four out of five three out of five and, so and the phonetic spelling or yeah, whatever yeah, it was yeah, called exactly, yeah exactly exactly yeah. so we try our best to go back in then uh, the following day or later on in the week and we knew then if we were ordering that you know it was it was edible of course and of course a lot of their food is very extreme is extremely spicy or uh, might be meat that um you don't eat or seafood that you don't eat it's like a lot of their food is 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 uh, very intense in flavor so that's kind of where it kicked off but i suppose the food was always um was always a passion i suppose and again didn't derive from from my parents um, my mum's a good cook but she wouldn't be passionate about cooking yeah. uh, I got a lot of it from uh, my brother so when we were growing up we'd be up on the weekends till you know as you would 12, 1, 2 in the morning playing video games and stuff like that and we were growing boys so we were always hungry so we'd be trying to concoct bits and pieces at all hours of the morning whatever we could find in, in the pantry the freezer, the fridge so that's kind of where it started from and then of course school as well um, or college I should say um, I I hate eating like greasy food or food that's not healthy for me. So in college as well, I was trying to like once I was away from home, was always trying to f- I suppose eat relatively healthy, eat decent food. Yeah. So as I wasn't putting on weight and all the rest of it. So I suppose the kind of uh, my love for cooking kind of kicked in then, um, and then very much when I would travel, uh, and still to this day the most important part of any of my holidays or any of my breaks away is the food. If I go somewhere and it's bad food, 
uh, it completely ruins my experience. It's the most exciting part for me. If I even do a city break for two days, three days, and the food is bad, it's it's a it's a massive failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so like, the, I suppose the sights and the the activities are all an extra. I'm going to kind of experience the the different types of food. So I was over in Bangkok, was teaching in in the school, um, and I guess I was there maybe nine months, and uh, I saw an advert for there was a company called City Nomads. Uh, they were a Malaysian-based company and they were looking for uh, people who had a relatively decent command of the English language to review uh, restaurants and uh, and bars and hotels and whatnot for them so as they could inform a huge amount of people coming from their country would, would visit Bangkok on their, their holidays. So they had a section of this extremely popular website uh, and I think was also a magazine uh, where they would tell them the best places to, to stay, to eat, to drink. Uh, so they had no one in Bangkok to do that. So I applied, uh, got the job, was very little pay, uh, was kind of like pay pay by article, but it kind of gave me a platform and an opportunity to to visit the best places in Bangkok, which of course on the teacher's salary, um, which was a very basic salary, I couldn't do. Yeah. So I suppose I went from, from struggling to staying in like five star hotels and eating in uh, Jame, which is like a Michelin star restaurant, and it was just a complete change of 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 lifestyle and and getting around to these places, uh, really kind of upped my experience of of the country. I was getting to see so much more of it, um, and at a completely different level. Yes, I suppose what I had at the start, which was very much a, a grind, if you will, from street food to Michelin star food, basically. Exactly, exactly. Now, in saying that, the street food is is uh, the Thai food. If you're looking for the absolute best Thai food, that's where you find it. You find it off the street. Um, the old lady who looks about. 115 who's been cooking that dish since she was <laughs> 16 17 years old that's where you'll get like the authentic the the proper food but it was a fantastic experience to be able to go to these places um and and to experience i suppose the everything from the street food to the very very best food that they had to offer um so I was really really lucky yeah and where did, did is this where the the food blogging kind of stem from yeah, or i guess like when i moved home um I moved home then and I suppose I wanted to to retain some of that lifestyle. Like moving home was tough. I was I was moving home from from a country that I absolutely loved where I had a, a good lifestyle. Um we had a swimming pool on our roof. Our our rent was uh two hundred and fifty per month, two hundred and fifty euros the equivalent per month. Um we had like I suppose everything it was like a dream lifestyle so when I moved home I was very much starting from scratch back so, home to Ross Grey basically back, or yeah back home to Ross Grey to my old bedroom uh, I moved home I suppose my excuse was um, I felt that I had had enough okay so I was I was kind of I had done a year in, in, in Thailand uh, my friend Shane had gone home okay a year and a half I was there my friend Shane had gone home uh, he went home to to do Irish exams because he wanted to be a teacher, so he went off home. So then that was a, a huge change. So I didn't have my my friend my friend there with me anymore. Uh, I had met a girl there in in on my birthday, the night of my birthday, the December. So after after about a year, I had met a girl there and we were seeing each other for uh, three four months, 
um, she got accepted to study in New York. So she left for New York. So This is a Thai girl now, was it? Or? Yeah, okay. yeah. So uh, she got accepted to study in New York uh, and was going on. And um, she was very pro-education and really wanted to, um, to get her master's eventually and all the rest of it. So I was all for it. Absolutely. And she went off to New York and Shane left. And I guess they kind of, they left in around the same time. So I suppose my, the two people who are, who I were, inter, who I was interacting with most yeah. were gone in a very short period of time. Yeah, your time. anchors so, in the country basically. Exactly, yeah. So I suppose that changed my, my experience, my experience there. And I started to think maybe it was time to move home. And uh, it was around the time that Garda Shiakana were recruiting again. So um, my brother being a guard, um, I I suppose I would very much look up to him um, and he I suppose for, for the vast majority of my life was uh, was someone who I would very much value their advice and if I was worried about something if I was going through something positive or negative he would be one of the first people I would call we would be very close so he was a guard so of course naturally um, do you know I looked up to him and that was something that was always you know on my agenda yeah, if the, the opportunity arise again I'll go for it so I suppose that's what I kind of used as my my reasoning for coming home. So came home to to do the the exams, which um which didn't go to plan. I suppose you could say um I didn't uh, make the mark, if you will. So I had kind of done everything I possibly could in terms of preparing for it, but missed out in one aspect. It was the uh, the part of the test that was new for this recruitment. It was um uh, like a scenario exam. So they give you a a situation and then they ask you a number of questions and basically like what would you do in this situation so thinking back on it um, <laughs> had I have known better what I should have done is I should have said okay what, what answer do they want Course. rather than yeah, yeah, what would yeah. I actually do that old Whereas, chestnut yeah so I suppose the answers I was given were, were what what I would actually do rather than what, what you should be doing so it kind of fell short on that mark so I suppose in the long run, it turned out to be uh, the best thing because uh, because I love my job now and I love what I do and um, I suppose I'm, I'm really happy where I am. As in, I, I, I there would be never any any morning I would get up and dread going to work. Um, it's it's exciting and it's new. I suppose every day I work in the the housing and homelessness sector. Um, so I suppose, of course a huge topic at the minute and and. Uh, a huge issue in Ireland at the minute so uh, I love it I do so I suppose in the long term happy that the guards didn't work out but was very much why I moved home um, so didn't get it and fell into a job that um, I suppose I just I really didn't like I was I suppose the hours I was putting in um, were benefiting someone's pocket rather than benefiting um, I suppose someone in 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 a sector I was passionate about whether that be uh, in the charity sector or whatnot which I had done for for years previously uh, so I had a huge issue with that so it just wasn't for me um it's interesting what you say there is is that a is that a common theme that people who work in charities for a year or several years have trouble ever transitioning out of that does that does that make sense uh, I suppose personally for myself uh I know that I found it very difficult um could you could you like you're, you love your job now, but for whatever yeah. reason, if you were to, I don't know, move country or the, the organisation that you worked with, I don't know, restructured and there wasn't a position mm. for you there, would you nearly have to go to another charity? Or could you see yourself working for, you know, the man again? Or, do you know that kind uh, of way? I, I suppose at the minute, I, I couldn't. I suppose I've tried it. I've tried, I've done both. 
um, and I just I find it I need my job to be fulfilling in yeah. some way um, so I suppose I, I like I work with people who have come from various different sectors who were on um, I suppose less hours but much higher salaries elsewhere but wanted to be doing something that was giving back to yes, uh, meaningful exactly and I think because a lot of them are, are kind of everyone's kind of coming in to the centre coming from different avenues you're working with people then you're left with people working with people who um, are extremely positive and I guess like minded uh, to yourself uh, which is always enjoyable so it's a fantastic working environment so I work with uh, amazing people like I work with uh, 15 friends I would say uh, I hope they would, they, they would say the same <laughs> but like I say they're just amazing people like I said they come from, from all different avenues and, and, and different backgrounds and stuff like that but I suppose uh, the common denominator is that they're working there because they want to help people who uh, who don't have I suppose who, who didn't have the same opportunities that they had grown up so uh, it's very fulfilling to to do that Um as your as your job as your career so then to kind of leave that and go out and work for as you say the man uh, personally uh, I don't know if I could do that and in relation to the industry that you're in because you, mm. you've mentioned it a number of times that it's kind of it's prevalent it's in the media these days mm. I don't see it I, I hear it because I, I don't watch the news I don't watch television generally I don't listen to the radio I'm, I'm, I'm out of that kind of yeah. generic media loop say but I do hear it mentioned by people kind of in passing and increasingly over the last 12 months, I think I've heard mm. there's been more talk of it about it than, than ever before. I think in particular the last two Christmases, say, yeah. for, for whatever reason. You that's kind of up to your eyes in that in that industry, what are the common misconceptions that are either in the media or that you see people having generally or, or are there any? Yeah, so it's going back to what we were talking about earlier on when people are, are talking about like donating to charities and stuff like that. I suppose with homelessness, a lot of people... Um, I suppose have that thing that like you know if, if someone is, is homeless it's because um, they generally think they have a, a substance misuse issue whether that be with drugs and alcohol where uh, I guess the reality is that the, the reasons for people becoming homeless there's a, a vast and wide variety of them everything from family disputes and breakdown to uh, sexual abuse abuse physical abuse um, a huge amount with, with mental health issues and then of course like a lot of a lot of the guys who who end up in that situation they they never misused uh, any substances beforehand like might have liked the occasional drink but never misused drugs but I guess could very easily fall into that um, uh, that I suppose side of things or very f- easily fall into a substance misuse issue I suppose from, from a prolonged period of time in and out of hostels or sleeping rough on the street so it's understandable because I guess the the hard fact of it is that it it removes them from that frame of mind or from that situation um, for a short period of time if you're, you know, drinking or or taking drugs. I I think substance abuse abuse generally, I think is not to to generalise too much, but it's it's nearly always a form of escapism. Yeah. And I I think a lot of people who who mightn't have a, a problem as such, but put it this way, as far as I'm concerned, at least for whatever that's worth, I think our binge drinking culture is escapism. Do you know that kind of way people yeah. people hate not hating their jobs, but people just not necessarily being fulfilled or doing anything meaningful Monday to Friday. Absolutely, and luring a load of points into you yeah. on a Friday or Saturday night is just yeah. a distraction, basically. And I guess it's it's a huge part of what we do as well is is trying to teach young people about how and why um, 
these guys are are are, are becoming or ending up in in uh, ending up homeless so i guess like uh we do a lot of 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 school talks in teaching young people and that's one thing i always ask i always say like you know how and why do people become homeless and generally the first two that always come up are are drinking drugs so i kind of discuss with them you know the other reasons um and then like i said i understand it in a way why they would think like that because like it's in friends of mine uh like would have had that image and i'm pretty sure i would have i would have given the same answers before i suppose educated myself uh on the sector before i started working there um but it's very much i suppose we're trying to we're trying to change that we're trying to change the way young people view uh homeless individuals and uh teach them how they've ended up in that situation so as they're able to correct people so you know, if they were to say anything or say derogatory um in the future walking past their age, they know how and why these people have have ended up in this situation so it's a huge part of what we do um but uh yeah like it's in it's 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 a tough industry to be in but one i suppose at the minute that there's a huge amount of support for so like one of the great things about the job is that you meet so many amazing people who who want to give their uh their time um they want to donate whether it be through through time or volunteering or or money or run a fundraiser um and you meet these people on a on a daily basis so it's another fantastic aspect of the job and is there particular organisations that you might point people towards that are particularly good in the area or I suppose like you saying there's there's the, the main ones. I suppose Peter McFerry Trust, Focus, Simon all do. I suppose work with different demographics but would all work, I suppose, on, on similar projects. And I suppose the goal generally at the end of the day for all of them is the same, is to get as many people off the streets as possible and into permanent accommodation. Um I suppose the the, the figures to do figures get released on a, on a monthly basis and they're constantly on the increase so i suppose to to nip that in the bud and they're all doing their all their own separate things and i suppose um have achieved great things in the sector as 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 charities uh but i suppose it's a it's a drop in the ocean compared to to what needs to be done and in terms of in terms of solving the issue long term um we're a long long way away from that yeah yeah Okay, so you're flat out with the with the job. How do you squeeze in time for the for the blog? That what the food culture, isn't it? We haven't hung- even met. Oh, yeah. Sorry, the the hungry culture. The hungry culture. Yeah, we yeah. haven't really spoken about it at all. No, I guess uh, I suppose like what I, what I was saying, I wanted to kind of uh, keep hold of some of the lifestyle that I had when I was living over in in Thailand, yes. over in Bangkok. So I guess when I moved home, uh, I suppose by by starting up my own food blog. Uh, that was very much a part of it. Um, I guess, like, as in, for a long time, I was posting up pictures of, um, of of the food I was eating because it was interesting to me. But a lot of my friends were like, "Nobody cares what you're eating for your lunch. <laughs> Nobody cares you're eating for your dinner. Like, stop doing it." But I was like, "Some, you know, some people do. You know, oh, some people. Play. There's fair people. Play. There's people who are as passionate about food as I am, and I knew that. So, anyways, set up this, uh, set up the hungry culture." And I suppose it started off as, as I suppose, me keeping track of, uh, of my favourite places to eat. So it pretty it really kicked off when, when I moved to Dublin. So it was, it was a, a few months after I had moved home, moved to Dublin um, and wouldn't have the best of memories. So it was me really keeping track of the names of the restaurants and the dishes that they had. Um, and then I suppose I found that uh, people were kind of uh, following it to kind of scrolling through and following it. 
so as they could find their own places. If I was after eating somewhere and the picture looked relatively nice, then they'd plan to go there that weekend, etc., etc., as food blogs work. Um, so that's kind of where it started. That's about like two years ago now. And it's kind of grown from there where we would now work with a lot of Irish producers. So I guess our following would be very heavily Irish-based. Um, and we work with a lot of Irish producers, I guess, who want to push their product out there. Um, uh, in terms of pushing the product out there to a, a wider Irish audience. So again, as I said, myself and my brother would be, be very passionate about food, particularly Irish food, um, and, and most definitely cooking. So let's say, for example, a company uh, uh, might send us their product. And what we'll do is very similar to the Tasty videos, which are, I suppose, the, the, the most popular online cooking videos. We'll make a recipe out of the product that they've sent us kind of do a step-by-step uh, recipe guide and then show the finished product take some pictures and it's all in a nice video I suppose showing people exactly the process of how to make it uh, so it's been I suppose you could say relatively successful so far and then there's kind of two sides of it there's the side where we work with the producers uh, and then there's the side where we kind of um, try to uh, market our favourite uh, bars, restaurants, cafes uh, around Dublin uh, Wicklow sometimes pepper potted around the country um, to kind of tell people where our favourite places are to go what kind of dishes you can get there what we thought of the dishes um, and I, su- I suppose more specifically what's Irish about the food in the cafe so the dish that we're after eating that we photographed uh, what Irish products um, or, or, or what uh, Irish ingredients uh, have gone into this dish so I suppose for people who are very passionate about food um it's it's no effort really it's in like so i have my 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 job my nine to five uh this kind of takes place after work on weekends where as i said i suppose a lot of my my uh, my leisurely activity is spent finding the next best place to eat um i get my exercise in and all the rest of it but i wouldn't be a, a big drinker so i guess the money that uh some of my friends would spend on boozing uh, and as you said like very I suppose part of our culture uh, an escape um, I would spend on, on food yeah yeah, yeah. Um, we, we'll definitely get to the, the training part but before I forget and I'll hopefully rem- rem- I'll hopefully remember to ask at the end for your you know, your different social media um, handles there we go yeah. thank you <laughs> uh, but on the off chance that I don't think of it what are they how will people find you or you know what what do you have is there a website a, a twitter handle a, yeah so a there's Facebook? a website which is hungryculture.ie uh, then there's Facebook which is at hungryculture Twitter which is at hungryculture and Instagram which is at hungryculture uh, Snapchat is there as well Um we kind of just missed that generation, so we're still learning <laughs> how to use it. But I suppose the Instagram handle would be by far the most uh, the most popular. Um, and yeah, that's basically what it is. It's just kind of um, uh, finding really, really nice dishes around Dublin, um, taking pictures, taking videos, um, telling people what's Irish about it and what we thought of it. Um, so I suppose people would use it if you're based in Dublin. Uh, or plan to visit Dublin anytime soon. I suppose it's a it's a, a fantastic um, outlet to kind of scroll through. Depending on what you're in the mood for, you'll come across something that you know you're craving or that you know you haven't had in a while. By scrolling down, you'll say, "Okay, perfect," and you click on it, click on the location, and it'll take you pretty much straight to the door. Uh, so that that was the idea around it. 
uh, and in the process of kind of uh, building up the the following that we have, have got to eat uh, some uh, phenomenal dishes along the way. Well, I about believe it, and the the yeah. two years that you're you're kind of I suppose you've been in a in a weird sense you've been kind of cataloging Irish food over the past years. Yeah, are there trends that you've seen kind of come and go, or what have you noticed anything kind of change, or have you I suppose. Have you made yourself aware of what mightn't have been, of what wouldn't have been on your horizons previous? Do you know, like I know, have you discovered something that you people aren't really aware of, or I don't well, know I what suppose, have you found. I, I suppose the big thing now is is healthy eating. People yes. are a lot more health conscious. So with that, I suppose, um, I suppose that and and dietary requirements, which are were almost unheard of uh, <laughs> in Ireland fifteen twenty years ago, uh, you couldn't ask go into a cafe and ask for something that was uh, gluten free. Um, do you know, I suppose that there was well, my my uh, knowledge is definitely not in Ross Gray. Um, you can't go into too many restaurants and ask for like a, a vegan friendly dish, <laughs> if you will. So I suppose they, they I suppose the the Dublin in particular, and I suppose the cities would would very much cater for a wide variety of, of dietary requirements and all the rest of it. But I suppose bits and pieces pop up and they kind of come and go in terms of popularity. Uh, it was smoothies for a long time. Yes. Um, now, uh, then, then it was pizzas, pizza shops, uh, burritos were around for a couple of years. Now, burritos, I suppose you could still say are there, uh, but donuts is the big one at the minute. <laughs> so I suppose I'm anxious to see, I don't know what it is just yet, but I'm anxious to see what replaces all the donut stores around Dublin in, in two or three years to come. Um, because you can't you can't go twenty feet in Dublin now at this stage without coming across um, the next best donut place in the uh, world in the world. <laughs> so so that'll be replaced in time. Uh, but kind of fads they do they kind of come and go. But the healthy eating one um, is 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 well I hope is is around to stay uh, because I suppose it's it's brilliant that people are becoming more health conscious uh, and more conscious about what they're putting into their body. And and because of that, companies have to be more conscious about what they're putting into their product, because if they're filling their product with crap, uh, people are more knowledgeable on it now and, and they're not going to purchase it. So there's that kind of pressure on companies. So you see companies taking uh, certain measures to make their product that little bit extra, um, extra healthy or I guess not as uh, not as crap as it used to be. Yeah, of course, and yeah. I think buying Irish goes along there as well because if it if you know between being environmentally friendly and wanting to kind of support your local community and that by default you're kind of eating better because it hasn't travelled from halfway around the world. It hasn't been you know in cold storage or it hasn't been gassed or picked before it was ripe and ripened you know in a warehouse somewhere in the exactly. port or, or whatever else. Exactly, and it was a huge reason of it was is how we got to work with so many Irish. Uh, producers were uh, going to the likes of the ploughing championships and meeting um, you know the butcher from Mayo who's there who has like this like huge pride in the sausages he's selling and he's able to explain to you there over the counter exactly where that's come from and it's also we kind of, we kind of see that in, in some of the supermarkets it's become like a real um, uh, a real trend that you know people want to know like is in what I'm buying I want to know where it's coming from so what you see now in a lot of the supermarkets is they have like a picture of the farmer on the front and, you know, Donny from Kerry. Do you know, that's where your beef stuff are coming from. Do you know, because you don't have that, you know, interaction with them. So uh, there's a name for it, but it's, I've, it's, 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 lo- it's, it's uh, lost on me now. 
but um, uh, people want to know exactly where their food is coming from. So yeah, I suppose meeting producers at markets and and, and various different food festivals, uh, telling them what we do and saying, oh, we, like I said, like, we love your story. We'd love to promote your product. And we kind of go from there. Uh, so we've got to meet some fantastic people along the way. And like I said, our knowledge of, of, of food has grown exponentially from that. Um, and, and we really try to push Irish producers and, and um, Irish SMEs, like small, small Irish businesses. Um, because it is, it's a tough industry to be in. Uh, a lot of them have a huge amount of competition from uh, from the big boys in the in the, the supermarkets who are able, to, of course, to sell similar products for um, for a bit cheaper. Uh, but then I suppose trying to we're trying to push the, the quality of, of, of the Irish producers and to inform people of exactly where it's coming from and the backstory of the producer. So highly enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, and have, have have you met many producers in your, you know, in the two years of doing this, or what types of producers have you have you spoken oh, everything, with? Everything, from butchers to uh, protein bar makers, uh, everything, you name it, and and we've kind of worked with them. Everything, like, listen, I, I I'm looking here. I brought two packets of biscuits with me uh, from uh, East Coast Bakehouse, which are not another Irish company. Uh, but like I said, that's what we're trying to do. It was find there's there's new producers on the every single month. There's new producers entering the market. Um, I said I'm a big fan of what, what Super Value do when you walk into the store and have the, the food academy I think it's a fantastic initiative because basically what they do with that is they try and take these companies who uh, might have very little funding and what they do is they kind of give them a blueprint on how to make it and help them along the way like as in they, they kind of bring them up with them um, and then kind of uh, put them in various different stores in their locality to see how they kind of do in in the local store and then it might span out to the county and uh, might span out to the province and then eventually I suppose nationally and some of the ones that make it have made it nationally like the likes of of cool beans have you ever heard of cool beans yeah 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 so i love cool beans so i i think the two girls started it uh, they kind of started it and the idea was um, if they were on the run whether it be studying or, or working they wanted something that they could literally heat up really really quick that was still healthy so their beans are really really healthy Irish um, and they're a really really nice team as well really, really nice bunch so there's loads of companies like that who uh, who I guess need that little bit of an extra push um, in terms to, to push them out there and to kind of make them known to the wider Irish audience so um, so that's essentially what we what we try to do Yeah no I, I think I think it's a very valuable service that you give just by I suppose I, I know myself as a relatively small producer and especially if you're you know, a kind of a, an owner-manager type setup, which a yeah. lot of these SMEs, if yeah. not all SMEs typically are, between, you know, accounts and, you know, payroll and tax and, you know, just keeping revenue happy and sales, there's an awful lot that goes on on top of actually making the fucking thing that you yeah. sell. Like, yeah. Do you know, like, I know yeah. And I think a lot of people are very good at what it is that they either set or what it is that they either bake or cook or grow or raise or whatever it is, but they mightn't necessarily have the the kind of the business tools. Yeah. And you guys, to a degree, take a certain part of the marketing hassle off them. I mean, if you if you write an article saying you've got, I, I don't know what kind of following that you guys have uh, online, like we're at about about thirty thousand at the minute, but that spreads across. I suppose that would spread across everything between the website, uh, the website blog, uh, Snapchat, Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, but everything combined, it's about thirty thousand. Um, mainly Dublin-based, 
um, I suppose Dublin pepper potted around the country but mainly Dublin based because like I said a huge part of the blog is cafes and restaurants uh, in Dublin because that's where I'm based that's where I'm living me and my girlfriend are living so we generally do the cafes and the restaurants the producers kind of come from all over the country so when we're covering a producer uh, when we're kind of uh, marketing a producer we always make sure to include where you can buy that product because yes. sometimes they're not at a national scale yet so you might only be able to buy their product in five super values in County Wexford for okay. example uh, but I guess like as in if you if you like the product um, enough you'll you'll go back for more if you will um, like there's one one that I was kind of telling you off air earlier one of one of my favourite ones is the Origin Protein Bars um, that are based in County Kerry which you can order online uh, but uh, to my knowledge can't buy in, in Dublin just yet but basically it's a market that is you can walk into any store and get you know there's like 20 different types of, of protein bars in there this one in particular uh, is extremely healthy um, so it's kind of cut out all the crap out of it and they're absolutely phenomenally delicious. <laughs> so I suppose there's and there's loads of companies like that who I suppose uh, without going to these things, um, I would never know. I would never kind of you know uh, come across or um, so there's loads of I, I suppose uh, Irish companies out there who produce a fantastic product, uh, but they're just kind of hidden um, to the the wider Irish audience um, f- for a short period of time. So what we try to do is kind of boost that up to kind of boost it along to let people know uh, what it is where they can buy it and what we think of it yeah no, and, and fair play to you again I think as I said like it's a it's a it's a much it's a much needed and, and valuable service that you're you're, you're providing um, you mentioned as well this idea of going to like food festivals and, and farmers markets that seems to be an industry that's exploding in itself people have a real interest in, in, in food and artisan produce and local producers and new and different and healthy fresh local produce it's, yeah. it's great to see yeah well I suppose with people becoming more health conscious like I said they want to know where their food is coming from um, so the easiest way to do that is by going to your local farmers market where you're literally meeting the person who has produced this food and they can tell you everything about the product that you're buying where it's come from how long it's been there how they've grown it what they've used to grow it uh, and sure, there's no better way of, of you know in, and you enjoy the food more I, well I do anyway personally if someone has given me a background knowledge of where this particular piece of food has come from um, like even in a restaurant you know if, if I go in and order a dish and there's you know five different bits and pieces on the plate and the the waiter the waitress is able to tell me where these have come from and where they've got them from I enjoy it more it's not just a plate of food there's like a, a history behind it if you will uh, and I just find it so much more enjoyable and tasting the little parts of it and little bits of sauce and stuff like that because a lot of work has gone into I suppose bringing these bits and pieces together and it's the same with farmers markets people are going to go um and yeah, and, and to, to gather up knowledge on what they're buying. I'll buy, I suppose some of them are a little bit more expensive, um, if you will. But if you're passionate about food, for me, it's it's very much worth it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we can't talk about healthy food and a healthy lifestyle and training without mentioning jiu-jitsu. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, when did you get into the jits? Um, I got into jiu-jitsu when... Uh, when I moved to my my current apartment, um, and I suppose with all the the eating food, I needed to find an avenue where I was going to shed some of the fat. So, um, I'm I'm naturally slim enough, um, but I suppose when you're eating the 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 amount of food that I do be eating, 
gradually takes its toll as the metabolism is slowing down, etc. So, um, I I hate running uh, for whatever reason. I just find it unbelievably boring. Some people find it <laughs> extremely therapeutic. Um, I'm kind of I've an overactive imagination. So, kind of when when alone with my thoughts for a long period of time. Um, it's not very relaxing for you, me. You need somebody trying to strangle I, you to exactly, distract yourself. Exactly, and that's the thing about jujitsu. You see, like is in when when there's someone who's eighteen stone trying to put their knee in your neck, <laughs> you 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 can't think about uh, you know the trouble that you're having at work or you know the argument that you've had at home before you left. Yeah, the pile you're, of washing or whatever. Yeah, it is, the pile yeah. of washing or or the exam you have coming up. The only thing you're thinking of is how do I get this guy's knee off my neck? Yeah. So <laughs> you kind of if you will, it, I find it very therapeutic that when I go I simply cannot think of anything else bar what I'm doing uh, you know that current role the, the, what I'm doing in that moment now I'd love to be going a lot more often than I do uh, but with work and, and personal life and stuff like that I get there as often as I possibly can but uh, never in 30 years have I ever done anything that I find as, as therapeutic as Jiu Jitsu which sounds outrageous because there's people trying to um, to hurt you <laughs> in yeah, some way, shape yeah, or form yeah, and to get yeah. you to submit, uh, to kind of outthink you and, and um, uh, to beat you, uh, basically. So, but I find it very therapeutic. Like every every evening I leave there, um, I feel like I've, I've emptied out uh, a huge amount of junk from my head, from my body, from everything. And of course, as you know yourself, it's extremely physically demanding. Um, so I suppose over time you just feel you feel fantastic um, not I suppose not during the roles they're never <laughs> but it's <laughs> so like they're a, enjoyable a, but but it's like a workout you, know, you mightn't enjoy it per se whilst you're doing it but you've always enjoyed you'll always exactly. enjoy having done exactly. it exactly and exactly I, I there's something very meditative in a in a kind of counterintuitive way about about rolling and, and kind of sparring in jiu-jitsu because it fo- it really does force you to be in the moment. Yeah. Like what we spoke about, exactly. about the, the guys living in, in Uganda, you know, yeah. the, there's obviously nobody trying to pull their arm off or, or choke yeah. them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's something to that, that being forced to, to be in the moment and and I suppose just, just forget about the trivial bullshit that we tend to find all consuming, whether it's the bills or the job or the, you know, the row you had with ourselves. Yeah. But, uh, where are you training? Give props uh, to the, it's, the club. It's, it's a gym run by by uh, a man called Barry Oglesby. Uh, Barry, to my knowledge, would be very well known. Yes, yes. The jiu jitsu community in Ireland, um, and the gym is called Kyuzo, uh, K-Y-U-Z-O. Uh, it's very very near uh, Blanchardstown, Ashtown, uh, Castleknock, that general area. Um, and it's just fantastic. Like I suppose, like for me, who's a I'm not a dope, so moving up here, a huge part of, uh, of why I enjoy it is the social aspect to it as well. Uh, do you know, like the lads, if you will, do you know that that some people get from from being part of a GAA team or, a football team or or whatnot. Like I played football when I was growing up as well. Um, but it's I suppose the culture that's there as well. It's a very positive environment, and then it's not the, just the jujitsu as well. Like he's in, I suppose Barry. Um, uh, he's he's a fantastic individual to to listen to, um, his uh, his opinion on different things. Like of course, beforehand everyone's having the chats and and afterwards you're kind of going through maybe bits that you did wrong and stuff like that. But he sends out like an email uh, a couple of times a week, uh, 
on various different thoughts. Sometimes it's just like it's it's as random as a, a, a box of frogs. Do you know what I mean? It could be it could be about anything. But uh, it's always something I always read it and at the end of it really gives you something to, to think about. And then on top of that, um some people pay huge subscriptions to kind of get that um to kind of get that uh uh, take away from from something whether it be an app or a book or or whatever yeah, it might absolutely, be absolutely yeah um, self help book or exactly exactly yeah so uh it's just fantastic and then like i said yeah a great bunch of lads and then for fitness it's just amazing and confidence like like a complete difference in my confidence in the past uh year and a half that i'm there uh compared to before that uh now my i suppose like like i said a year and a half uh I'm I'm at jiu-jitsu and there's guys doing it like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Some guys doing it their whole lives. Um, I by no means would be, um, you know, would, would be, I, my knowledge of jiu-jitsu is what I'm saying is very, very basic. Yeah. But I reckon even at this stage of a year and a half of doing it, I would definitely have the confidence now to know, like, God, God forbid, if I was ever in a situation where I was in trouble, I would have the basic knowledge to be able to protect myself or the person beside me, whether that be my girlfriend or whoever it might be, with a relatively good level of, of confidence. Whereas before, um, I, I wouldn't have done. Do Straight you know to I mean? the fetal position kind of thing. Pretty much. And like, do you know, like, isn't even in school and when you see like altercations like out in a nightclub or something like that, it used to make me look super uncomfortable. Uh, do you know, like seeing stuff like, God, like isn't he see some chap getting hammered and you're like, God, what would I do? Like, if that was me, like you're saying, like, I'm in, I'm in his position. Like, saying, I, I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. You know, if someone decided that, that they were going to target me, I wouldn't know what to do. Of course, growing up, you know, everybody's been in that position at some, well, most people in that position got a few thumps off someone or, you know, yeah, the no, school bully happens, or whatever yeah, it might yeah. be. Yeah, of course. So it's just giving me a completely different level of, of confidence that I know, all right, okay, you know, I have, I have the basics. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then what I love about it as well is, like I see, like it's 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 the art of it, where you can see someone who is, um, you know, a teenager that's that's nine stone, ten stone, and they're getting the better of some guy who's fifteen, sixteen stone, just because they're more they're more technical. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, in, like, it's obviously yeah. the like is in weight is a huge advantage. But I suppose the longer you're at it, um, and you see it all the time in the gym, guys who are much, much smaller getting the better of um, much bigger guys um, just because they have that technical side of it, which is great to see that um, I suppose the advantage is nothing got to do with, you know, how big or how strong you might look, um, that it's very much, you know, about how well you're able to defend yourself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's often referred to as a, a thinking man's martial arts. Eh? Yeah. And I think, one of the things that I love about it is the way that you can do it into old age. It's it's not as if, you know, Jesus, you're you're thirty now, Michael, you know, you want to be wrapping up your, your yeah. jiu-jitsu career. Like yeah. as you said yourself, like you're at a year and a half, you're only getting started. You've another, you know, forty years at it if yeah. you if you, yeah. if you so Absolutely. wish, you know. Yeah. Um but I think the beauty of having you speak in, in those terms about it and the I think it's a you, you almost said that you know look you're only doing it a year and a half you're, you're no expert but there's a there's a beauty to that because I've I've spoken at length about jiu-jitsu on this podcast and I've had two um two black belts on previously and granted now they were coaches but it's great for people to hear someone who's only at it you know a relatively short a relatively short space of time and speak so kind of passionately about it because people who people who give it a lash and you know 
people who give it a try and like it tend to fucking love it. Like, yeah. do you know that kind of yeah. way? That's the that's the yeah. really cool and thing I, about. And it. as the joke goes, it's, it's like about jujitsu. If you love jujitsu, you talk about it all the time. Uh, like my niece, she's she's nine. She asked me a reason. She was like, uh, "Do you know what grade are you?" I was like, "Oh, I'm only I'm only the first grade. Like I'm only a white belt." She was like, "I thought you were a black belt." And and her and my <laughs> like my smile, they were just disgusted at me. And I was like, "Why did you think that?" She's like, "Cause you never shut up talking about it." And it's just like it doesn't really work like that. You know what I mean? Like it's gonna be ten years. It could be eleven, twelve years before you get that far. But uh, like as the joke goes as well, like how do you know if someone's vegan? because they'll tell you and it's very much like that about jujitsu like as in you just get this you get addicted to it and it's all you want to talk about and you want to you know watch movies and you're you know want you want to watch um documentaries or or um what's the word i'm looking for uh youtube clips of techniques and bits and pieces yeah, in, yeah, in your spare time uh but like i said i'd love to be doing it uh, more than i actually am uh but i kind of i go through uh, i i face very like a, a wave emotions i generally get there maybe once a week uh on a good stage i'd get there two or three times a week some stages of the year uh from september onwards it kind of whittles down uh and that's very much depending on on work and, and how busy we are uh but i can't ever see myself there would be stuff of course that i've kind of uh, fads that i've fallen into and then i've given up but i definitely could never see myself at this point ever uh, willingly giving it up yeah uh, I think, and that's for sure i think one of the great things about jiu-jitsu is that the learning curve is so steep yeah you know if, if you if you go once or twice a week for two or three months you're you're like a some sort of you're at a masterful level in comparison to somebody that's there on the first day and there's something really cool about that and yeah. you know and likewise in another six months you're light years ahead of someone six months previous to yeah. you, you know yeah um which is which is just which is great, but look, I I, I love plugging um, the club uh, Oglesby Club. What what was the name of it again? Cuyuzo. Cuyuzo, Cuyuzo. Yeah. And was it Blanche Ashtown direction? Uh, it's out near Ashtown. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, give us a rundown of the social media uh, for the the Hungry Culture again. Uh, at Hungry Culture, so H U N G R Y C U L C H I E, and that will be across all of them. That's across our YouTube channel. Uh, Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, the whole lot. Okay, brilliant. Well, yeah. for anyone will uh, looking to to check you out, uh, give them a like, give them a share, give them a comment. All that stuff goes a long way. I'm sh- I'm sure you agree. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And listen, Michael, I've taken up enough of your time. Thanks a million for Thank coming on. Thank you so on. much for having me. Thanks Cheers. a million. <laughs>